1: Thanks to you at home for joining us. In just a few minutes, we will be joined live by, yes, Chris Hayes, but also Wisconsin Democratic Senate candidate Mandela Barnes. Election day is less than a week away, and Mandela Barnes is in an extremely tight race against incumbent Republican Senator Ron Johnson. The outcome of that race could determine control of the U.S. Senate, which on its own makes the stakes extremely high in the state of Wisconsin. But even more than that, even more than that is a lot is on the line here. If Wisconsin's Democratic governor, Tony Evers, loses his re-election bid, a Republican governor and the Republican legislature will have the power to do basically whatever they want. And that may include rewriting Wisconsin's election laws to give Republican officials the power to decide who prevails in future elections. In 2020, Wisconsin was one of the states where Donald Trump tried to get Joe Biden's victory overturned. State officials resisted Trump's pressure and certified Biden's win. But the current Republican candidate for governor in Wisconsin, Tim Michaels, is an election denier who has refused to say whether, as governor, he would certify a Biden win in 2024. And this week, he got even more explicit about what it would mean if he wins.
2: Republicans will never lose another
3: election in Wisconsin after I'm elected governor. Yeah.
1: Republicans will never lose another election in Wisconsin after I'm elected governor. I mean, points for being candid. Usually they don't say that part out loud. And Tim Michaels is not alone in this. Plenty of Republican candidates across the country refuse to commit to accepting the results of their own races.
4: My question is, will you accept the results of your election in November? I'm going to win the election, and I will accept that result. If you lose, will you accept that? I'm going to win the election, and I will accept that result.
1: That's a GOP candidate for governor of Arizona, Carrie Lake. And the Republican running for Arizona secretary of state, which is the office that oversees elections, has also said that he won't accept a loss. He says there will be no concession speech from him. Well, okay. When The Washington Post reached out to 19 Republican candidates in battleground races, A dozen of them declined to say whether they would accept the results of their contests, which makes sense because when they looked at races for House, Senate and key statewide offices around the country, the Post discovered that over half of the Republicans running for those offices are still refusing to accept the results of the 2020 election. Nearly 300 candidates in all. So it is in that context that tonight, President Biden stepped up to a podium in Washington's Union Station, which is not far from the U.S. Capitol, and he issued a stark warning about what is at stake in next week's elections.
5: I hope you'll ask a simple question of each candidate you might vote for. Will that person accept the legitimate will of the American people, of the people voting in his district or her district? Will that person accept the outcome of the election, win or lose? The answer to that question is vital. And in my opinion, it should be decisive. And the answer to that question hangs the future of the country we love so much and the fate of the democracy that has made so much possible for us.
1: President Biden tonight telling American voters that the fate of democracy hangs on how they vote in these midterm elections and trying to prepare Americans for what could happen in just a few days time the country could be in a very different place. After beginning his speech talking about the attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband by an assailant who broke into their home, hunting down the Speaker of the House, Biden warned that the anti-democratic behavior and violent rhetoric engulfing the Republican Party, that that is all a path to
5: chaos. This is also the first election since the events of January 6th, when the armed angry mob stormed the U.S. Capitol. I wish, I wish I could say the assault on a democracy had ended that day, but I cannot. As I stand here today, there are candidates running for every level of office in America, for governor, Congress, Attorney General, Secretary of State, who won't commit, they will not commit to accepting the results of elections that they're running in. This is a path to chaos in America. It's unprecedented, it's unlawful, and it's un-American. As I've said before, you can't love your country only when you win.
1: You can't love your country only when you win. So says the President of the United States. What does the last President of the United States say? Quote, our country is rigged, crooked, and evil. That is from this past weekend. I think it's safe to say that this is the first time a former U.S. president has called America evil, but that is where we are. The anti-democratic forces President Biden is trying to rally Americans against tonight are not coming from somewhere outside. They are very much here already, metastasizing inside the Republican Party, and they are on the ballot right now. Joining me now is the host of All In and my dear friend, Chris Hayes. Thank you for staying at the office late for us. It's great to be here. I really wanted to talk to you about this, given your body of work on the subject matter, and also this just absolutely strange and perilous moment we all find ourselves in as, as Americans, as members of the news media, as people that follow this stuff incredibly closely. we all watched President Biden's remarks tonight. And i the first thing I wanted to ask you about is whether you think that there is actually a distinction to be made, as the president insists there is, between Republicans, and MAGA Republicans.
6: I mean, I do because I do think that if, if you look at the dividing line about sort of do I have faith in an individual that they will concede an election they lost in a timely manner, like there is a distinction between certain characters, like Mike DeWine in Ohio. Okay, Mike DeWine in Ohio is polling up 15 points. I think he's probably going to win, but I think that if Governor Mike DeWine lost an election, he would concede. He's actually lost elections. I covered election he ran against Sherrod Brown in 2006 in the Senate. He lost. You know. So, yeah, I think there's a difference between the kinds of individuals in the Republican Party, and I think still think there are many, who would concede that they lost and move on. And then, like, do I think that Mark Fincham, who's running for secretary of state in Arizona and is polling behind, let's be clear, to the polls that we have, that if Mark Fincham loses the Arizona secretary of state race, is he going to say, eh, you got me? Yeah. No, like, no. probably not. So I think that distinction actually does have some meaning. And
1: I'm so, Well, I guess I should say there is a distinction between not only MAGA Republicans and reg, regular uh, truth uh, right. a- accepting Republicans, but also who is who who we're talking about. There are the elected officials and then there's the grassroots. And I and and I at this point, I truly feel like the grassroots are actually leading the party right yes and and in the in the numbers if you look at who is in the Republican Party and what they believe 61% of them believe the election was stolen for Joe Biden the president of the United States Joe Biden who won I think wants to believe that that number is smaller, or he believes in the yes. goodness of that co- this well, country, and and two thirds of the Republican Party, a- as it is the people of the Republican Party, does not believe he is legitimate.
6: No, I mean I think the math that you're running there is correct, and I think it was incorrect in the president's speech where he called them a minority of Republicans, which I don't think they are. I think they're a majority. It's the majority dominant faction in the Republican Party, though not entirely. Right there are there's a minority that is not in that faction. It's the majority faction that runs one of two parties. It is a minority in the broad American populace, which still to this day retains a robust pro-democracy majority along the lines of 60%, I would say, probably. But there is a a dominance of this anti-democratic faction in the Republican Party. And that's really the the whole issue. You have a two-party system. You have a competitive democracy. We have a multi-party democracy. You can't have... A multi-party democracy, if one party keeps winning elections, they have that in some countries, Mexico for decades, they've had it in South Africa for decades, they had it in India for decades. That's not real competitive multi-party democracy. Yeah. So by definition, the parties are going to take turns with power. If one party can't be trusted with that party, that's where the breakdown happens, and that's exactly what we face. Right. I
1: kind of think of these, and i'm I'm obviously projecting I don't have a crystal ball, but I tend to I'm, I'm thinking as we watch these moments unfold like the one we did tonight 2020. 2022 and 2024 as kind of a tripartite stress test of mm-hmm. the American democracy, yeah. right? 2020 is the uh, sort of test of an external threat. Do the, Does the center hold? Do the institutions hold up? In large part, they do. 2022 is the voters. Can they distinguish between those who are lying to them? Do they want right, to distinguish? Yeah. Who do they elect? 2024 is if we do elect all these election deniers into office— what happens to the well, system when it's corroded from the inside, okay. as opposed to the threat coming from the outside. This is a great building.
6: point. And I think there's two things to think about, right? So one is just election night and election week after 2022, which is what happens of the Mark Finchams in the world. Now, at some level, I suspect and, and hope that if they lose, they'll lose and they'll be gone. <laughs> that I hope I retain hope. But it's also like Trump has opened the window for all sorts of mischief, right? But then the other thing is like, Forget Kerry Lake and forget Mark Fincham and forget um, Marchant in Nevada, Okay, Just a Republican House. The precedent was set in 2020 for the first time that is a matter of the U.S. Constitution that after the whole country runs an election where we spend half a billion, a billion dollars on the election, then the House meets to decide, like, do we like that result? Right. Let's vote on it. Like. That's no, 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 no. We just ran a whole election. But that was the president set by 2020. So if the Democrat wins and a majority of the Republican House is going to be like, I don't know. What do you think, fellas? Should we keep this? So that that's already before we even get to, like, all the crazy mischief that can happen in state certification, all the crazy mischief At that can happen in electors, oh, 2024, just the fact that it has been introduced as a precedent in 2020 yes. that the house is going to have this vote that's no longer pro forma, no longer a ministerial stamp that says yes, these these are the results. It's a I don't know, fellas, what do you think? That itself is correct.
1: Yeah, even if you don't get the seat, you may be pulling the curtains down from the windows as yeah. you are escorted out of the building. Yeah. And where what what ha- kind of house does that leave you in? I I before I let you go cuz you've earned you've earned your keep this evening. You get to go. <laughs> Thank up you. It really feels like not an overstatement to say we are living through history and this we could be witnessing the end of liberal democracy. I, mean, I, I say that almost like it's hard for me to. It's, yes. I mean, but I, th- those are the stakes. I mean, Biden is not, overstat- no, this is I not don't. political rhetoric.
6: No, I totally this agree. This is a
1: man who understands his place in history. And when books are written, they will mark down. He gave this speech six days before the 2022 election, because there is going to be some outcome in the next month or year that is significant in terms of liberal democracy. I
6: totally agree. And I think, you know, we we talk about this this terminological dispute about fascism or what other foreign models. I mean, we had competitive multi-party democracy in the American South for about eight years after the Civil War that was replaced by one party authoritarian single party rule. So it's happened before. Yeah, yeah. I guess my my only feeling is it's I don't want to foreclose what happens on the other side of any given election because civil society still exists. Courts still exist. Speech still exists. Mobilization still exists. We still have these platforms like. And so it's not like there's like some like definitive like people need to understand that, like, and I thought the president did a good job here is democracy is process and not a destination. It's a journey, not a destination. It's something that you're working on. And so whatever outcome happens, whatever assaults on there are, you you try to vouchsafe it and defend against it as an active effort day in, day out through whatever means you have at your disposal. Um, and that's going to be the case uh, two weeks from now, no matter what. We will do our
1: part yeah. to keep democracy going. My friend, it's always good to see you Great and to to talk you. with you and hear your wise words about what's Thanks. happening. Thanks for your time. You uh, thank you, Chris. And joining us now is Claire McCaskill, former U.S. Senator from Missouri and an MSNBC analyst. Claire, I'm So happy to have you here tonight to understand what happens in the next six six days and how you see Democrats managing the message uh, going into a very, very, very consequential midterm election. The first thing I have to ask you is, what did you make of the president's remarks tonight? And were you surprised that he chose this moment to talk about the threats to democracy that we face?
4: Well, first, it's great to be with you, Alex. I'm excited to be on your show for the first time, and I look forward to visiting with you many times in yes, the future. Yes, please. Uh, I think um, Joe Biden gave a speech tonight that he wanted to give, and I'm not sure he spent a lot of time analyzing the timing or the theatrics or the visual I think he wanted to say something. I think he wanted to grab America by the shirt, shake America and say, please pay attention at this moment. As you guys were just talking about, you know, democracy is a journey. It's not a destination. And what Biden was trying to do tonight is to try to reach some Americans that aren't part of that chunk of the Republican Party that thinks they only believe in elections when they win. But rather the rest of the country and say, you know, we are dangerously close to losing something that defines our country that we have been very proud of and been pretty good at for most of our history. And it is in trouble. And I really want you to pay attention. Um, It was not a wildly political speech. It was really a speech about American democracy. And I think it showed um, that. He's afraid of what is happening and this illness, this big, huge bump in this road of democracy. I mean, it's like they've torn up the road and now we got to figure out how to get to the other side. And this election may be a bridge that restores our journey on democracy or. It could tear the road up even further.
1: Claire, I got the sense. I mean, the president has spoke to these themes before. He spoke about them last month. Uh, He's clearly worried about some of the election deniers who were on the ballot. um, That's looming in the foreground. But I also got the sense that the attack on Paul Pelosi deeply shook him. Um, not just because he's known Nancy Pelosi for a very long time, not just because it's the husband of the Speaker of the House, but because it's so much of a piece with what else he sees as plaguing the country, the poison that has spread through its veins. Did, did you get that sense? Do you think that the Pelosi attack and as the books are written, will be seen as an inflection point in the, you know, in, in the in the rise and the profligate, the, ex, the expansion of violent political rhetoric that becomes actually just plain old violence in the real world.
4: Well, I think um, Joe Biden was um, deeply troubled by what happened, but he was probably just as troubled by what happened after the attack. Um, the notion that you would have the same chunk of people in our country basically calling the police liars, uh, you know, the police that they purport to support, that the blue line and, you know, that we're the ones that care about law and order and support our police. And they basically called the, the police liars who responded to a 911 call and intervened in a violent situation, risking their own lives and arrested a suspect and then legally, after giving him his rights, secured a videotaped confession. And they're basically saying, yeah, no, we don't believe you. No, you're a big liar. So I think it's the reaction of people and the failure of Republican leaders that Joe Biden knows very well. I think he's most disappointed that there wasn't more of a coming together at this moment of Republicans and Democrats in Congress to say no more, no more political violence. I think he's disgusted at how many Republicans are either saying very little saying horrible things or just standing silent. I really think that's what it's about. I just wonder
1: how it's so hard to know who the intended audience for. I mean, I think the president was saying it for history, for himself, for the American public. And I wonder if he was trying to speak to a specific slice of the American electorate. Um, you know, we talk about the division in this country. I was talking to Tim Ryan last night, and he still re- retains a certain amount of optimism about whether you can, you know, have a Fox News town hall and also appeal to Democratic voters. I know in 2018, you, you talked to the Fox News audience and felt like that was a necessary part of campaigning. Do you still think that it's possible to be a Democrat in this day and age? And talk to the people who are fans of Donald Trump or believe the election, something nefarious, went on and get their votes.
4: Well, it sure as hell better be. Because if you look at this, Alex, let's look at the country. We probably have 25 to 30 percent of Americans that are totally in the tank with Donald Trump and his lies and the big lie and the fraud and elections don't count unless we win. But then you have the rest of the country. And if we stay on opposite ends of the room, if our party doesn't try to move and capture the concerns of those people who don't see themselves as a rabid Democrat or a very progressive Democrat, they see themselves as middle of the rotors. I know these people. I represented a whole bunch of them. And when you have swing districts and you have swing states, if we don't have candidates who can speak to that middle who can try to capture those people and bring them and make a healthy majority where we can compromise and actually solve problems, uh, then we either are going to break apart or we'll end up probably with a third party before it's all said and done, I'm guessing. I would prefer one of those outcomes over the other, I have to admit. (laughs) I would, too. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) I I really I mean, I want the Democrats to understand something. Everything you're hearing about the Republicans are winning the polls and Republicans are going to win and we're losing in the polls. Do not believe it. I have been on both sides of this a week before big elections where the polls said I was going to win and I lost. And the poll said I was going to lose and I won. So please, everyone vote. Do not believe for a minute that we are not in this and that every single vote doesn't matter. It does. The courts held him up last time and they'll hold him up again. Everyone listen to Claire McCaskill, former U.S. Senator from Missouri, MSNBC
1: analyst, friend of the show. Claire, thanks for your time and wisdom as always. Thank you, Alex. We have much more ahead this hour, including breaking news tonight in the Mar-a-Lago investigation. A Trump ally has been ordered to testify to a federal grand jury about Trump's mishandling of classified documents in exchange for immunity. What that means for Donald Trump just ahead. And we are officially just one week away from the midterm elections. We all know that by now, but I'm going to keep saying it. And in Wisconsin Senate race, Republican incumbent Ron Johnson's lead over his opponent is getting smaller. Democrat Mandela Barnes will join me live from his campaign bus to talk about what could happen just six days from now. That's next. Stay with us. Ron Johnson is Wisconsin's worst senator in decades. That is a bolded 18-point subheadline in an editorial the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel released today, one that endorsed Democratic Wisconsin Senate candidate Mandela Barnes. And the paper did not pull any punches. This incompetent senator has compiled an appallingly slim list of accomplishments for 12 years in office. But as far as the things Johnson has done in office, the paper notes, Johnson has played fast and loose with the facts for years. He's an anti-science super spreader of conspiracies who has claimed sunspots cause global global warming and warned that the vaccines that saved millions of lives could make the COVID-19 pandemic worse. It took Johnson more than a month to acknowledge the obvious that Joe Biden had defeated Donald Trump for the presidency. And even then, the senator held a sham hearing the next day that allowed Trump's lawyers to air arguments that had been shot down in courtrooms across the country. The paper goes on to accuse Johnson of lying about his involvement in the state's fake elector scheme, of trying to politicize the social safety net. And the paper says Johnson has been running racist ads. Now, just to remind you, this is coming From the USA Today Network's editorial board, the USA Today Network does not normally weigh in on candidates, but they said they made an exception this time because the stakes here are that high and they have more than a few concerns about Senator Ron Johnson, clearly. In contrast, here's what the paper said about Johnson's opponent, Mandela Barnes. Mandela Barnes is young at 35, but has served two terms as a state representative and one as lieutenant governor. His positions on the major issues facing the country are reasonable, measured and mainstream. They go on to say Barnes is a quick study who will lean progressive but remain pragmatic. Most importantly, he will focus on helping working class constituents rather than delivering tax cuts to billionaire donors, as Johnson has done. Just a few weeks ago, Ron Johnson had a six-point lead over Mandela Barnes in the Marquette Law School poll. That lead is now a two-point lead, which is within the margin of error. Joining us now is Wisconsin Lieutenant Governor and Democratic Senate candidate Mandela Barnes. Lieutenant Governor Barnes, thanks for being here tonight on your campaign bus. How are you feeling about your chances in six days?
3: Well, thanks so much for having me. We're feeling incredibly uh, energized by the momentum, uh, by the folks that are showing up in rallies all across Wisconsin. As you mentioned, we are on our, our on our RV tour getting all across Wisconsin. This is the win for Wisconsin tour because that's exactly what we intend to do. Not just win in a campaign, not just win an election, but to win for the working people of the state who've been left behind by Ron Johnson. They're all sort of concerns and frustrations that people have had over the last 12 years. An absolute lack of representation. Ron Johnson has been in it for himself and his wealthy donors at the expense of the rest of us. He's been all too comfortable sending good-paying jobs out of state and overseas. He's a person whose position on abortion is too extreme and out of touch with the 70 percent of people in this state that believe Roe versus Wade should be the law of the land. And his flirting with the toppling of our democracy is something that people of the state of Wisconsin refuse to stand for. And, you know, we are uh, every day showing up being people where they are. And that's what this is about. And if folks who are watching want to join us, please go to MandelaBarnes.com to help us get the job done.
1: You say uh, Ron Johnson has been flirting with the toppling of democracy. He was asked by The Washington Post whether he would accept the results of the elections in November and said, we'll see what happens. Are you preparing? a? Is there a strategy prepared for if you win and he refuses to concede? I mean, to what degree does a campaign have to game out something for the post-election chaos?
3: Well, he's already demonstrated the uh, lows that he'll take it to. You know, when he didn't like the result of the 2020 election, he used his power as a U.S. senator to try to overturn that election. He looked every single person in his eye, every voter, said, "Your vote doesn't count. Your voice doesn't matter. It's my way or the highway." People are tired of Ron Johnson only being in it for himself. Now, it's not our fault that democracy isn't working out for Ron Johnson. We're going to still push to fight for it, protect it, make sure that the right to, uh, to vote is uh, is protected across the country, across the state especially. And we're going to stand up to any sort of uh, attacks that he tries to uh, wage on the process. I'm more than happy to accept the results. And it's a shame that Senator Johnson can't say the same thing.
1: I mean, Wisconsin is one of those states that is always narrow. Joe Biden won, uh, though victories tend to be narrow because the state is deeply purple, right? It's very, very sharp divide between the two parties. Joe Biden won the state by 21,000 votes. And what seems to be happening in Wisconsin is that Republicans, when they can't win outright fair and square, have tried to diminish or dilute Democratic power in the state through gerrymandering and through otherwise basically shrinking the power of Democrats to represent the state, even if they have the votes, if you will. I believe Democrats have to win the statewide vote by 12 points just to get 50 seats in the assembly, according to the Marquette University Law School. Republicans, on the other hand, could garner a majority of the seats and states in the state state assembly with just 44 percent of the votes. That, I think, strikes some people as on its face undemocratic. But then there are the plans that the Republicans have basically outlined to take back a supermajority and diminish the the role and the power of a potentially democratically elected governor. Tony Evers is the governor. He's running for reelection. And it sounds like the Republican legislature wants to do everything in its power to prevent him from actually being able to make law or exercise veto power. How worried are you about the state of Wisconsin becoming effectively an anti-democratic state with the Republican... Uh, strategy to effectively undermine the voice of the people in the democratic process?
3: Well, I think you laid it out as plain as day. Ron Johnson is all too comfortable writing the rules to ben- benefit himself either financially, you know, Working to rewrite the tax code that he benefited from personally, as well as his own business. He's a person whose own successful business, as he tells it, a multi million dollar business, uh, has paid zero dollars in state income taxes since 2013. And when it comes to the election and the outcomes, this is a person who is going to stoop to whatever low, he's going to try whatever. It is a real threat. Democracy is actually on the ballot. We need people who are going to respect the will of the people. The will of the people should be the law of the land. But because of gerrymandering, that's not the case. And that's why we need to expand the majority so that we can implement the reforms necessary to end partisan gerrymandering. And so that the people can actually have their voice, so that people can choose their representatives and not the other way around, which is the case right now in Wisconsin.
1: WISCONSIN DEMOCRATIC SENATE CANDIDATE LIEUTENANT GOVERNOR MANDELA BARNES, THE RACE IS GETTING TIGHTER IN FAVOR OF YOU. EVERY VOTE WILL COUNT. ELECTION DAY IS IN SIX DAYS. THANK YOU FOR TAKING TIME AND YOUR BUSY SCHEDULE ON THAT CAMPAIGN RV. WE APPRECIATE YOU. GOOD LUCK OUT THERE.
3: Hey, THANK YOU SO MUCH FOR HAVING ME.
1: UP NEXT, THE TRUMP LOYALIST WHO SWORE MONTHS AGO THAT PRESIDENT TRUMP HAD DECLASSIFIED ALL THE DOCUMENTS FOUND AT MAR-A-LAGO. NOTHING TO SEE HERE. HE IS NOW GOING TO TESTIFY BEFORE A GRAND JURY IN THE CASE in exchange for immunity. That's next.
0: Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13.
7: Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.
1: Okay, remember this guy? This is Cash Patel. Before the Trump era, Cash Patel was a congressional aide to Congressman Devin Nunes. Then, after playing loyal foot soldier in congressional Republicans' fight to kneecap the Mueller investigation, Kash Patel worked his way into President Trump's inner circle and was eventually appointed to a series of national security jobs that he had little to no qualifications for. After Trump left office, Cash Patel stayed in the Trump orbit and became Trump's point person for dealing with the National Archives, which is how Kash Patel found himself squarely in the the middle of Trump's biggest scandal since leaving office. The former president's decision to take thousands of White House documents with him, including hundreds of highly classified documents, and take them down to his Florida beach club and then lie about it. It was Kash Patel who went out and told the right-wing news outlet Breitbart in May that Trump had done nothing wrong because Trump had already declassified all the documents at Mar-a-Lago. He told Breitbart, I was there with President Trump when he said, we are declassifying this information. So far, the Trump legal team has not actually made that claim in court. It is just a story that Kash Patel and Donald Trump like to tell from time to time, which is why, among other things, a lot of people would like to ask Kash Patel a lot of things under oath. And now, tonight, just before we got on the air, the Wall Street Journal broke the news that that guy, Kash Patel, will now testify in the Mar-a-Lago case in exchange for immunity. Kash Patel, a close associate of former President Donald Trump, is set to soon testify before a federal grand jury probing the handling of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago after receiving immunity for his information. That, according to people familiar with the matter. Mr. Patel appeared before the grand jury last month and refused to provide information by repeatedly invoking his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, the Wall Street Journal reported. But that was then. And this is now. The Journal reports the immunity grant leaves the government only able to charge Patel, if at all, using information obtained independently of his immunized testimony. So if Kash Patel incriminates himself in testifying about the Mar-a-Lago document scandal, he won't go to jail. If he does go to jail, it will be for other things. The Wall Street Journal also reports that other Trump associates involved in the Mar-a-Lago documents matter also have been offered some form of immunity, including one of Mr. Trump's lawyers, Christina Bobb who declined, saying she didn't need it. We don't know exactly what the Justice Department wants to ask Kash Patel, or why they went to such lengths to make him testify, but presumably prosecutors want Patel to admit under oath that Trump never actually gave an order to declassify those documents. Doing so would shut the door on one of Trump's main public defenses. Whether Patel's situation leads to other witnesses being immunized for their testimony, well, that remains to be seen. But one thing is for sure here, a Trump loyalist, a guy with a lot of inside information, he will now testify under oath in this very legally perilous case. And that cannot be welcome news for the former president. More ahead. Stay with us. What I'm about to show you is probably one of the most infamously racist political ads in American
0: history. Mm -hmm needed that job and you were the best qualified but they had to give it to a minority because of a racial quota is that really fair harvey gantt says it is gantt supports ted kennedy's racial quota law that makes the color of your skin more important than your qualifications you'll vote on this issue next tuesday For racial quotas harvey gantt against racial quotas jesse helms
1: that was an ad for the 1990 re-election campaign of Senator Jesse Helms, Republican of North Carolina, a longtime segregationist turned conservative firebrand. That ad has become famous in modern American politics for its explicit appeal to white resentment and racial animus. Plenty of campaign ads before and since have used dog whistle politics to play on racial resentment and fear, but few have ever been as explicit in promoting the idea that white voters should see the world as a zero-sum battle between white and non-white people, that they should vote for candidates who will advocate for white people over non-white people. At least that was until this week, when a group led by former Trump advisor Stephen Miller started running this shocking new ad.
0: When did racism against white people become okay? Joe Biden put white people last in line for COVID relief funds. Kamala Harris said disaster aid should go to non-white citizens first. Liberal politicians block access to medicine based on skin color. Progressive corporations, airlines, universities, all openly discriminate against white Americans. Racism is always wrong. The left's anti-white bigotry must stop. We are all entitled to equal treatment under law. America First Legal paid for this ad.
1: That is a real ad on the airwaves right now in Georgia. It's not Stephen Miller's first racist ad or his only one. Earlier this month, another group run by Miller paid to air an ad during a playoff game between the L.A. Dodgers and the San Diego Padres. That ad, which has since been removed from the group's social media channels, warned viewers that a giant flood of illegal immigration is draining your paychecks, wrecking your schools, ruining your hospitals, threatening your family, and that mixed among the masses are drug dealers, sex traffickers and violent predators. This kind of overt racist trolling is what we have come to expect from Stephen Miller, the architect of some of the Trump administration's most heinous and bigoted policies. But the ad isn't just for Stephen Miller or just for former members of the Trump White House. What is shocking here is just how much these ads fit with the Republican Party's closing arguments as we approach Election Day. Since Labor Day, Republicans have flooded the airwaves with ads about violent crime, many of them with racially coded messaging meant to scare white voters into supporting Republicans. They've released campaign materials with manipulated images that darken the skin tones of black and brown candidates. And now they're returning to the Jesse Helms playbook, saying the quiet part out loud, telling white voters explicitly that they should feel aggrieved and afraid. With just six days left until the election, where does this all end? Joining us now is Adam Serwer, staff writer for The Atlantic and author of The Cruelty is the Point, The Past, Present, and Future of Trump's America. Adam, thank you for being here tonight. I just, I, watching that Jesse Helms ad, I am so distraught (laughs) by how how much worse we are now than we were even then. I mean, some of these ads that Stephen Miller and other Republicans are running right now would never have been used even in a Jesse Helms campaign uh, campaign strategy. And And I guess I wonder, what do you think has happened to this country? There were some decades there where it felt like we were moving past this, or at least you couldn't have these explicitly racial ads on the air. And now we are in a totally different place. How are we back in the 1980s, back in the 1960s, maybe back in the 1950s as far as race in this country?
2: Well, I, I actually don't think we're back that far. I mean, you know, Jesse Hounds was a segregationist. I mean, he, he, he wasn't against racial quotas. He, he believed overtly in uh, racist oppression of people who are not white. And, and that is what you see in those ads. Um, but the legal situation is obviously very different than the 1950s. I mean, these are, cl- as, as you pointed out, these are sort of classic race baiting ads of the sort that segregationists would have run decades ago. Unfortunately, you know, this is a pretty standard Republican approach in recent years, which is to try and scare white people as much as possible. So they'll vote GOP rather than thinking about Republican plans to cut the social safety net or preventing women from deciding whether or not they want to carry a pregnancy to term. They want white voters walking into the voting booth thinking they're going to be oppressed because they're white. And, and, and this is not really that different from 2018 when, or 2020 when sort of these, uh, migrant caravans pop up and all of a sudden there's an invasion and these people are going to come in and, and they're all drug dealers and terrorists and they're going to kill every, everyone. You know, this is like basically what Republicans do have done every midterm for years now and every election for years now. Um, and I think basically what happened was that, uh, you know, Barack Obama got elected and that caused a reaction. And from that point on, Republicans felt more comfortable uh, being uh, with overt expressions of bigotry because uh, of the fierceness of the conservative opposition to Barack Obama. And what Trump did was really tear the stigma off of that for Republicans because he could do it and get away with it. They all sort of wanted to live vicariously through that. And so they all started imitating his brand of overtly racist politics. And so now, you know, this is just this is just room temperature.
1: I wonder, um, Adam, the other part of this that feels, I guess you could say, innovative on the part of Republicans is this new claim about anti-white bigotry, which is twofold. One, it's kind of gaslighting, right? I'm not racist. You're racist. But also in sort of assuming the role of the oppressed, it renders the cry of racism almost meaningless. Do you think that that's part of the intention here in terms of kind of like casually throwing around the words bigotry and racism and trying to own them
2: themselves? Well, look. That's the standard playbook from the nineteen fifties. I mean, that's what segregationists said in the nineteen fifties, where that they were being oppressed because they were white. That you know they were they felt like they were living in 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 Nazi Germany because of the way the federal government was treating the rights of white people. Uh, There's a lot of literature on this. We've sort of. Airbrushed it out of American history because now nobody wants to be remembered as being one of those people or being descended from one of those people. But the idea that civil rights, that racial equality w- was oppressive to white people was a line that the segregationists like Jesse Helms put, pushed uh, for years. So it's not really new. It's a revival of a type of politics uh, in the past that, you know, we maybe may have told ourselves that, you know, we had gotten past, but we really haven't gotten past it. And I, I, I want to be clear here that w- what they're doing is when they say anti-white bigotry, they're not really against, and they say, you know, everybody should be treated equally. They don't really believe that. I mean, Stephen Miller, uh, in leaked emails, uh, he portrayed the repeal of, of of racist immigration laws blocking non-white immigrants from coming to the United States as the thing that ruined the country. So this is someone who is in favor of overt racial discrimination against people who are not white, just as Jesse Helms was. Um, he just it, wants to portray any kind of uh, racial equality as a form of oppression against white people, and hope that that scares white people enough to be thinking of themselves as an oppressed class as they walk into the voting booth and therefore vote Republican.
1: Well, and we're seeing this play out not just in politics, but also in the court, where the Supreme Court this week heard arguments against uh, affirmative action effectively and found some strong support with mem- conservative members on the bench. We will see how that plays out. The dismantling of diversity is a concept in American life. Here we are. Adam Serwer, thank you as always for your time and thoughts tonight, Adam. Thank it's great for to me. have you on the show. We will be right back. Remember this video from back in 2015? Security guards at a Trump Tower at Trump Tower and in an altercation with a group of demonstrators protesting Donald Trump's rhetoric about Mexican immigrants as he began his campaign for president. The protesters sued Trump and his company and the campaign and the security guards, alleging that Trump's head of security bashed one of the protesters in the head and disrupted their peaceful and lawful assembly. The case was in the middle of jury selection today when a lawyer for the group of protesters says Donald Trump reached a settlement with his clients. The matter was resolved on terms that they are very, very happy with, he said. A settlement in and of itself is worth noting, considering that in 2016, then-candidate Trump bragged in a primary debate that he doesn't settle. Referring to a class action lawsuit over Trump University, Trump said, I don't do it because that's why I don't get sued very often, because I don't settle, unlike a lot of people. He later settled that suit for $25 million. At any rate, when one door closes, another one opens. A short time ago, the former president posted on his social media account that he has filed a brand new lawsuit. This one, filed in the state of Florida, is against the attorney general of New York State, Letitia James. This suit comes a little over a month after James announced a civil suit against Trump, three of his adult children, and the Trump Organization. In his suit, Trump appears to be asking a Florida judge to restrain the New York attorney general from being able to get a hold of his assets in the state of Florida. Trump had previously sued James in federal court in New York, but a judge threw it out. We'll see what happens with this one. That does it for us tonight. We'll see you again tomorrow.